Hello, and welcome to the Multiple Sclerosis Association of America's podcast, Better Symptom Management Through Wellness. I am Peter Demiri, Vice President of Programs and Services for MSAA, and your host for today's program. Today's program is part of MSAA's 2020 MS Awareness Month, the Mind, Body, and MS Connection Campaign, which has been made possible by the generous support of Biogen, Bristol-Myers Squibb, and Genentech. I am honored to welcome our guest presenters, Drs. Mary Rensel and Amy Sullivan of the Cleveland Clinic's Mellon Center for MS. Dr. Rensel is an MS neurologist and director of wellness, and Dr. Sullivan is a psychologist and director of behavioral medicine research and training. Thank you both so much for being here and sharing your expertise with us today. Thanks for having us. We're excited to spend this time with our, with our MS community. Yeah, thanks so much, Peter. This is such a pleasure for us to be here this morning. Absolutely, thanks. So our topic for MS Awareness Month is the mind-body connection, which looks at both how physical wellness and emotional wellness are really integrated and so important in managing MS. Can each of you talk a little bit more about this? Sure, I'll start. This is Dr. Rensel. Um, as a neurologist, you know, when we're training, we learn about the brain and, you know, the special organ that it is and how it makes us who we are, and we learn about how to support it or the day-to-day activities that actually matter. And that has become more and more clear over the years through research um, that folks living with MS, um, you know, all the little decisions we make throughout the day actually matter, like what we eat and, and um, you know, how many people we see during the day and who's in our social network. Um, so we're all we're connected to our communities, we're connected to our friends, and it matters for our brain health. Um, I'll let Dr. Sullivan add to that. Yeah, I'd like to add to that, um, and especially given what Dr. Renzel just said um, with regards to how our social connections and our everyday environment uh, contributes to our health and well-being. So um, in psychology, we use a model called the biopsychosocial model of health and wellness. And this is a model that really understands that people are biological organisms, and so our our uh, genotype can really determine our behaviors such as wellness or disease. Um, and so this model takes into account, just as Dr. Renzel was, was speaking about, how our social and psychological worlds influence illness um, and disease as well as wellness. Um, and so we also acknowledge that there's an influence of individual culture, society, uh, religion, um, activity patterns, individual differences, personality, um, cognition, and emotion. And why this is so important to us is that um, we know that this is linked to what we call the mind-body connection or how, um, as psychologists, we can so uh, readily help people shape their coping styles um, and how they deal with uh, wellness and uh, illness. Oh, great. Thank you. That's uh, great insights. We appreciate that. So let's start with physical wellness, which most people recognize as diet, nutrition, and exercise. Uh, I know at MSAA, we're often asked if there's a specific MS diet to follow. Dr. Rensel, what do you tell your patients about diet, nutrition, and MS? Well, I always tell my patients my favorite uh, study regarding nutrition and MS, and that's the one of NARCOM, so that's a large study uh, surveying many patients living with MS and asking them, them if they ever tried a healthy diet. And when they even tried a healthy diet, they had better physical outcomes, meaning they could 
move easier, walk easier. So I always tell patients it's always worth learning and trying because even a little bit uh, goes a long way. And what we know about the brain is it's, it's made of billions of neurons, and all those neurons need support. They need a lot of vitamins and energy to work. Our brain is metabolically super active. It's the most active part of our body. And so we need to feed it well and give it healthy nutrition, which is hard for some folks, um, you know, living and dealing with MS symptoms every day because of the fatigue. So a little planning and a little knowledge can go a long way. There is not one diet that every MS patient has to follow, but we would like people to try to follow a healthy diet as possible. The current recommendation is to follow a Mediterranean diet. That's what the Mellon Center Cleveland Clinic recommends. And that's because there's so much literature behind that diet showing that it helps for um, at least systemic inflammation, so inflammation throughout the body. And it's, it's great for heart health, et cetera. So there are ongoing studies, multiple studies, looking at different diets for MS, and there's books, et cetera. But really, it is not known, the one diet. Um, but we do know that excessive sugar changes ba- brain structure and how it works. Um, we know we need healthy fat, so fat is not the enemy. Myelin is made of fat, so we know we need healthy fats like fish, avocado, et cetera. So there's, you know, there's a lot of nice, simple things we can do each day to support brain health through uh, what we're eating at each meal. Uh, that's great advice. Thank you. Well, moving on to exercise, it, it's certainly understandable that people living with MS can experience difficulty with balance, strength, fatigue, heat intolerance, which certainly can all hamper their ability to exercise. Understanding this, what are some of the safe and effective options for the MS community to exercise? Well, that is very true. It is very, you know, it can be very frustrating for uh, MS folks. They, you know, I had a patient yesterday who kind of just threw in the towel. He said, you know, he's feeling weaker, it's getting more frustrating, and he can't find, he can't do what he used to do. So sometimes we need, you know, pull in our health psychology partners, and we have to reframe, you know, and talk about, you know, what it is today, what we can do today. And we have physical therapists, occupational therapists that can get to know that patient and structure a program particularly for them. So it's it's not supposed to be painful or horrible. It's supposed to be something that you can squeeze in your day. Um, general health and wellness, at, for somebody with or without MS, the recommendation is 150 minutes a week at least of moderate level movement. So with MS fatigue, if there's any way folks can break that into bits and pieces throughout their day, um, that's fine. They don't have to do an hour and a half at a time or, you know, a really aggressive step class or something. If if they have little weights in their house and they can do five minutes here and there or a little, um, you know, stroll through the living room, that's fine. If it's a stretch at commercials, I'll take it, you know. But some kind of movement really makes a difference. And it, there's been some really interesting research showing that physical movement also supports uh, memory or cognition with MS. So when patients say, what can I do for my memory? I'm concerned about it. This is the best thing, physical movement um, to support. Because, it, you know, when we physically move, we demand more from our brain. And the brain, the nerves have to kind of connect, and they enhance their connection to each other, which we call synapse, so how the nerves talk to each other. So the more we demand of it, the better our nerves work and the more they branch to reach out to other nerves. So even though it's not maybe what it always was, it's some kind of movement really does matter. Right. And that does underscore that mind-body connection where you mentioned that it really can help in in the cognitive aspect as well. Absolutely. That's great. So I think 
uh, we can all appreciate, though, that it's certainly easier said than done to to eat better or exercise more. And, you know, certainly life happens and life with MS can be challenging for sure. So with this in mind, Dr. Renzel, what are some keys to creating and staying on your diet or exercise goals? Well, I think, you know, as humans, we're hard to change, right? And so that's where involving behavioral medicine or health psychology is important because, um, you know, we get in patterns and we get in habits and it takes some push to make new patterns or new habits. But once they're habits, then they're yours. It's like brushing your teeth. You don't, you know, think about that every day. That's something that you do. But it takes some time to make something a habit. So generally, like we talked about that, my favorite study is just even learning about what's good and even trying something. Sometimes then you can say, oh, it's not that hard. But to change a human, we have to make it easy. So if you're going to start exercising, you keep your shoes right by the door, you get your exercise clothes out the night before, you tell a friend, you know, to remind you to let's, let's go for a walk and do it together. Any way that you can make it easier for you, you're going to keep it as a habit and then it will be part of your regular routine. Um, same thing with nutrition. You know, I think in the morning we all have good intentions, but by night when we're tired, we say, oh, forget it. So it's good to you know, make a plan in right, the morning. Right. I'm going to have this and this. I'm going to prepare my vegetables. I'm going to cook them early in the morning when I have some energy. You know, just little things can go a long way. And I think the other important thing is to know what does not help, you know, what does not seem to matter. There's a lot of false claims um, online, et cetera. So I'm really glad you're doing this and taking the time to share this with our MS community because the simple things really do matter. You know, what we put in our mouth every day matters and how we move or stretch every day really matters. And if we see friends and family and connect with people, that really matters to our brain. So we don't have to go to a store and buy, you know, $700 worth of supplements and think that that's that, you know, and then sit down all day. You know, we need to, we need to do the things that really matter and making it easy for yourself and having a plan um, can definitely change things. But I'd like to hear from Dr. Sullivan. She knows the key to making new habits and changing humans maybe. <laughs> for sure. I'd like to focus now on emotional wellness and its impact on MS. Uh, Dr. Sullivan, can you touch on how your mental and emotional state can impact a person's MS and overall quality of life? I can. Um, so one of the things that I'd like to talk about first is that we've known a lot about stress, MS, and emotions um, throughout the course of the MS disease. So um, back in 1877, Charcot um, speculated that stress and MS were related to grief, um, adverse changes in social circumstances, and related to one's MS. So we've known since 1877 that there was a connection between stress and MS. Um, and then over the years, we've seen lots of correlational studies that have shown a connection between stress and MS. Um, specifically, if we look at studies that have um, looked at people during wartime, and what they what these studies have shown is that during wartime, more people were diagnosed with MS. And then more recently, in 2012, um, this is one of my favorite studies to cite, uh, Moore and his colleagues out at uh, Northwestern completed the first class one study on stress and MS, and um, they were really able to uh, tie stress to MS. And so in this study, 
the research team um, assigned 121 participants to one of two groups of people. Um, so it was either the intervention group or the control group. And in the intervention group, a stress management protocol was put into place for these individuals over the course of 24 weeks and consisted of 16 individual sessions. So what they found over the course of the study was that compared to people in the control group, the treated participants developed fewer GAD-enhancing lesions and T2 brain lesions. But I think one of the kickers of the study, for me especially, was that once a person ended their stress management work, um, those um, there were no differences between the two groups. So it's very important for individuals to participate in active stress management and understand the mind-body connection. Um, and so for, for me, when I'm working with patients, we have really, um, we really work to teach people a series of stress management techniques, um, helping people to really understand their response to the sympathetic nervous system, helping them to really shut down that flight or fight response, and helping people um, to combat uh, the symptoms of stress and therefore inflammation in the body. Oh, great insights. Very interesting study. Mm-hmm. Well, fortunately, there seems to be more awareness and acceptance about the importance of emotional wellness, especially when managing a chronic disease such as MS. But but I am curious if you see situations of people having stigma or shame associated with seeking mental health treatment. And, and if so, how do you go about helping to kind of destigmatize mental health and bring about acceptance? Yeah, I I found that very interesting. Um, I did most of my training in Atlanta and in New York, and so these are big cities where people really accepted uh, mental health, and um, most everybody talked about their therapist. And then I moved to the Midwest where when I took this job at the Cleveland Clinic and I realized that there was um, quite a stigma attached to mental health issues uh, in the Midwest. And so really I have been on a mission to change that. And so on Twitter, I um, have this normalized, not stigmatized hashtag that I think is so important. And um, I've seen so many people working to change that. And particularly in Cleveland, where we have uh, the Cleveland Cavs, we've seen Kevin Love um, do some wonderful work around, um, you know, destigmatizing mental health. And I've just been really uh, proud to see him and many of our other professional athletes and famous people coming out and describing their experiences with mental health that have been very helpful for normalizing. Um, With regards to our population, so our MS population, it, it's oftentimes uh, depression, anxiety can be both a reaction to but a symptom of the disease. And so I think that when we describe depression and anxiety as a symptom of the disease, um, it's not as hard for our patients because they realize that it's not that they're weak per se, um, that in fact, this is just that, you know, MS has a, a symptom of depression or anxiety. And as a result of that, we want to make sure that we uh, manage that. So our neurologists are very good with sending uh, folks to see us right off the, you know, right off the diagnosis. And they, they share that this is just a symptom of um, their MS. And so uh, one of the things that we say is MS takes so much from our patients, we don't want it to take its joy as well. Um, and so that's one way that we try to destigmatize mental health um, issues here. But another way
say is that we are in the initial shared medical appointment at the Mellon Center. So the initial shared medical appointment is for newly diagnosed patients. Um, and this is a appointment that um, our patients come to with whomever they choose. And um, in that appointment are one of our neurology team members and one of our psychology team members. And so right from the get-go, we do a wonderful job of destigmatizing and just um, making this known that this is just part of um, their MS treatment. Right. That's great insights. And and we often hear the uh, difference between the physical symptoms of MS and the quote, invisible symptoms, um, and certainly uh, stress, anxiety, depression kind of fall into that category. So I, I, it sounds great that you're putting them both up front as these are the symptoms that you need to be mindful of with MS in that regard. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that when we talk about the invisible symptoms sometimes being more difficult for our patients to manage, um, you know, when we think of the invisible symptoms such as cognition, uh, pain, some of our mental health conditions, depression, anxiety, um, sexual dysfunction, and fatigue, these are symptoms that are oftentimes more debilitating for our patients than some of their their, their physical symptoms. And so um, I think it's imperative that we're treating those and, and the invisible symptoms are things that, um, you know, we work so closely with. In fact, we have a group um, that we run here at the Mellon Center, one of our six groups, and we oftentimes talk about, uh, but you look so good, you yeah. know, and so many of our patients are um, really struck by that because they get discrimination um, because they look so good, despite the fact that they're really fighting or struggling with some of these invisible symptoms. Yeah, absolutely. We hear that as well. Or people will contact us through our phones or our pro programs yeah. that we attend. Yes. Um, well, you mentioned about stress and stress management earlier. So unfortunately, we all know too well that stress is an everyday occurrence. But can you give our listeners some helpful strategies or suggestions on ways to help reduce stress and anxiety and improve their mental well-being? Yeah, and I appreciate what you just did right there, Peter, because you said that you recognize that stress is an everyday part of existence. And so I think that's one of the ways that we can help to destigmatize mental health um, is just by talking about the fact that many times people come to see us for stress management. And that's one of the things that I think we've done really well at the Mellon Center um, in terms of destigmatizing because we label our services as a four-session stress management protocol. So let me tell you a little bit about our four-session stress management protocol um, here at the Mellon Center. So I shared with you the Moore study, um, and that study went on for a little bit longer than I feel our patients can uh, commit to because our patients are usually diagnosed um, in the prime of their life. These are in individuals who have jobs, have families, um, and they don't have a whole lot of time to commit to us. So what we wanted to do was pick out what we felt were the most important pieces of stress management to, to our practice um, and to implore those. And so what we do is a four-session stress management protocol where we really help the patients to understand the autonomic nervous system. So with that, we help them to understand the sympathetic nervous system, which is the fight-or-flight response, and the parasympathetic nervous system which is the rest and relax response. And so it's very important for us to share with the patients what's happening to your body from a negative perspective when you're in fight or flight, which many of us are um, on a regular everyday basis. 
and to help them then to recognize that they can turn that off and turn on the parasympathetic nervous uh, response and the rest and relax response. And we do that by way of hooking them up to a biofeedback tool so they're actually able to see the physiological responses as they're working on uh, these skills. So one of the next things that we do is we teach the diaphragmatic breath, um, and we feel like that's pretty much the key to learning the rest of our uh, strategies that we teach. So it, it typically takes some time for patients to really understand this diaphragmatic breathing, and from there, we work on that, um, and then we teach something called serial three breathing. Um, and this is a way to decrease the amount of breath that one has um, per minute. And then next, we move on to body scanning and visualization. And then finally, we move on to a skill that I love, um, and it's one of the skills that I really base my own stress management on, which is uh, mindfulness. Um, and mindfulness really is learning how to be in the present moment. So it's not looking ahead in the future where you can have worry, concern about the unknown, and it's not uh, regretting the past and being in, you know, depression um, or, um, you know, regret or remorse. It's learning how to enjoy the the moment that we have um, at this at this time. Um, and so when we when we do this, we I think we get a lot of buy-in from our our, uh, patients because, like we said, it's a four-session stress management protocol. We we share with our patients um, their data over time. So each time they come in, they can see how they're doing with their breaths per minute. They can see how they're doing with their saturated oxygen. They can see um, the changes in their heart rate. Um, and so the patients really buy into this. And then this, this protocol um, lasts over the course of uh, four to six months. So we have them come in every four to six weeks over the course of four to six months. So it's not a huge commitment in here, but it is a commitment outside of here because we want them to continue practicing um, these techniques. Oh, that's interesting and, and fascinating. And that was going to be uh, my follow-up is, is can they perform these uh, breathing techniques and, and the mindfulness at home and, and continue that through? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, you know, what we say is that we can teach you all of these skills inside these four walls, but it doesn't really matter what they do inside of these four walls except for get the technique because there's stress and, um, you know, anxiety occurs outside of these four walls. And so it's very important for them to be able to take what we teach them in here and bring it to the outside world. And so um, part of our uh, protocol is that we want them to come back and report to us in the next four to six weeks how they've utilized these skills um, in, in their stressful situations because, like you said earlier, we all have stress in our lives, um, but we want to know specifically how they utilize them. And then what's unique about this protocol is that we give them all of these tools but patients don't always respond to each and every one of them. So what we find over the course of time is that they've really, um, you know, held on to one or two specific uh, relaxation tools or stress management tools um, that they can utilize. And what's interesting as well is that sometimes one skill will be for one situation. So say a, a um, a, a job meeting or something like that. Another will be for a home situation. So our patients really learn how to tailor these um, stress management skills and skills of mindfulness to their everyday life. Oh, that's excellent. Very, very useful and helpful, I'm sure. So we had uh, touched on this earlier, but I want to go back and uh, moving beyond general everyday stress or anxiety might be a more serious issue of clinical depression. 
which is a common symptom of MS. So Dr. Sullivan, can you help our audience understand clinical depression and effective treatment options? Yeah, absolutely. So again, I, I just want to point out that when we think about depression, depression can be both a symptom to and a reaction to the disease. Um, so in our MS population, some studies will report that depression occurs in up to 50 to 54% of our patient population. Mm. Um, so really, you know, one in every two people that has MS is going to have a, a clinical depression at some point during their disease trajectory. Now, this is very different from depressed feelings. So both of them can be impactful, but a clinical depression is more severe. Um, and this is something that occurs when um, these feelings start to interfere with a person's daily functioning, when they're sad, depressed, or irritable, uh, more often than not when you see withdrawal. Um, and I think that one of the things that I've noticed is that our the patient's caregivers or significant others family members tend to pick up on this irritability um, and sadness more than the patients themselves do. So m many times the patients will be referred to us because um, either their neurologist or the, the person's family member has said, you know, I've noticed that my my partner is is really struggling with irritability. It's like walking around on eggshells. Um, mm -hmm. And so for, for us, you know, it's important for us to evaluate um, is this a clinical depression, so a more serious depression, or are these depressed symptoms? Either way, we like to put our eyes on them. Um, it's also important for us to recognize that um, screening tools can be very, uh, very impactful in, in picking this up. So our neurology teams, as well as our PT and OT teams, use the PHQ-9 um, before each session, and they're able to really flag if somebody's um, struggling because we're able to graph this out over time and see how some somebody's depression um, has changed over time. So. Um, it's it's something that I think is very important for all team members to be involved in here at the Mellon Center. We have an inter interdisciplinary team that works very closely together, but like I shared, um, really everybody's looking for depression because depression can really impact um, a person's ability to follow through with uh, treatment, so adherence issues, um, as well as, you know, everyday issues in their, their own life. So when we think about depression options, you know, oftentimes we do get our psychiatry team involved um, or our neurology team involved and to utilize um, some medications if they need it. Um, and then oftentimes um, we are up here able to manage their depression by way of cognitive behavioral therapy or supportive therapy, depending on what the patient needs. Well, Dr. Ritzel and Dr. Sullivan, you've both provided such great information and helpful insights today on this truly fascinating topic of the mind, body, and MS connection. As we wrap up our program, what are some key takeaway messages you want to leave with our audience today? Perhaps, Dr. Rensel, you can start? Well, you know, we're all born with, you know, our one gorgeous brain, and, um, you know, there's things we can do each day to support it. And that is what we put in our mouth while we eat, how many people we see throughout the day, the people we keep close to us, um, how we sleep. Um, you know, the medications we take, how we exercise. So there's things you can do each day to support that beautiful organ we have up there that makes us us. So we want to make sure we're doing everything we can, and little things each day really make a difference. 
Yeah, and for me, um, one of the most important things is really to normalize and not stigmatize. So to make sure that we are talking about mental health issues. And so I really appreciate, Peter, that you you pulled our team in and um, are willing to talk about this. Uh, such an important topic because so many people struggle with depression, anxiety, but it it is a part of the disease in many instances. And for us, we want to make sure that we're not taking anything else away from the patient. We don't want MS to steal anything else, um, especially a person's joy. And so just recognizing that as, as one has stress on an everyday occurrence, we can also provide these skills um, to patients to uh, try to decrease their stress on a daily basis. Well, that's great advice from both of you. We really appreciate your time and, and expertise here today. So this concludes our podcast, Better Symptom Management Through Wellness. On behalf of MSAA, I would like to thank Drs. Mary Renzel and Amy Sullivan for their excellent presentation on this very important topic, Gradwell Health Recording for hosting us today and producing the program, and our funding partners, Biogen, Bristol-Myers Squibb, and Genentech for supporting this podcast as well as additional programs as part of our MS Awareness Month campaign. Please know this podcast, along with additional information on multiple sclerosis, can be found on our website at mymsaa.org. Once again, thank you for listening.